0: Ghost stories, we've been telling them for, well, for not as long as you think, but there's still ghost stories that go even beyond our modern version of storytelling, and we're going to find out about that with tonight's guest, Scott Bruce, as we get ready to talk about the Penguin Book of the Undead. All kinds of crazy stories from years and centuries past that's happening on tonight's edition of Spooky South Coast. Matt, what number episode is this? Four. 473, episode 473 of Spooky South Coast starts right now. Along with the Silent Assassin, Matt Costa, Stephanie Burke will be joining us in just a bit. And I'm sorry, I couldn't remember what episode number this was. You know, after the first 465 or so, they all started to blend together, right? <laughs> we are barreling our way toward episode 500, which we predict will come sometime after our 11th anniversary in January. Uh, probably sometime in February, we will celebrate 500 episodes. We're going to do something big, but we'll we'll come up with something. Yeah, any ideas? No. Matt's like, I'm busy oh. trying to run Spooky TV on SpookySouthCoast.com. <laughs> right. I don't have time to answer your stupid questions. I think we're definitely going to have some sort of party. Whether people are going to be invited is right. another story. Well, whether or not we invite them and they show up is really a bigger people, question. I, people will show up. We have uh, some super fans in uh, the New Bedford area. We have not had so, an anniversary party for ourselves, I don't think, since the first one, right? No, it's kind of weird throwing yourself a party. It is. Somebody else has to do it for us. Right. It's the only way to make it appropriate. We'll get somebody to do it. We'll get the station to do it. <laughs> been here forever. I think we've been here longer. I think we've been doing this show longer than most of the people in the station have been working for the station. I think so too. Yeah. I think the only person, hmm. The only person that might have been here at least on air staff that I know of, is Michael Rock. He might have been the only person that was here when we started doing Spooky South Coast. And Jim Phillips, maybe. Well, Jim Phillips is, like, retired now. So, you know, he's only kind of here on a part-time basis. Right. So, but I think everybody else wasn't I mean, here. And, and I think everyone. Michael Rock was on KKB at the time. Yeah, way back then. So, yeah. Way back then. Hmm. Well... I guess that shows the longevity of talking about the paranormal <laughs> each and every Saturday night, which is what we do here on Spooky South Coast, and uh, we also stream live on YouTube and on SpookySouthCoast.com. We call it Spooky TV. You can check us out there. Uh, we're a little limited in our camera shots because Tim forgot the cameras. It's all right. got a couple. It's, it's all right. It's all right if it happens. You know, once every you know 473 episodes or so. We're already getting questions, by the way. Uh, on the, the chat room, they're asking what the Pokemon thing is that I'm wearing. It's my Pokemon Go Plus, which, you know, it's going to light up and vibrate if a Pokemon comes into the area, and then I can just press the button. I don't have to worry about trying to catch it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but, uh, you know. Take my Pokemon, here. It's your Pukwudgie detector. (laughs) That's exactly what it is. And I think Stephanie's just pulling up, so she's probably going to want you to let her in. Uh, But we'll be joined by Scott Bruce coming up in just a bit to talk about uh, his new book. It is called The Penguin Book of the Undead, and I have a copy of it right here. But this is the uncorrected proof version, so the cover, the new cover, when it actually is released to the public, will be far more creepier than what you're seeing right now. And... I think my Pokemon thing, by the way, is gonna make, uh, the microphone vibrate. I might have to take it off. But, uh, so the actual book will be, oh wait, I, I don't know which shot we're on. So the actual book will have a much creepier cover, I've seen the new version. Uh, but we will be talking with Scott in just a bit, but joining us to talk with Scott Bruce tonight is our show's content director, Chris Balzano. Chris, are you with us? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, there you are. Uh, so, I was just, uh, I was just reading your message. This book is currently the number one book in Paranormal Books this week. Yeah, although I don't know if that's
1: pre-sales, because it looks like it's technically not till Tuesday.
0: Right. But still, I mean, that just shows the the level of interest in this topic.
1: I mean, I think it's, you know, are we on the air right now?
0: We are on the air, yes. Okay.
1: <laughs> no, I think it's completely, um, you know, and he takes a much different approach than what we might traditionally think of as the undead. But I think this kind of study... Um, by a major publisher, by Penguin, and it's not a book of collection of ghost stories. It's not, I mean, it's an examination of ideas about the paranormal, I think, is on people's minds.
0: And it it goes to show that we're willing to go beyond, you know, the regular, uh, you know, haunted stories, and we're willing to go beyond just the the normal format and the normal structure of a ghost story. We're actually willing to uh, go back and dig into some of the history of this and, and look at this not just from... An entertainment perspective or just from a pseudoscientific perspective, but we're starting to put these ghost stories into our culture uh, anthropologically as well.
1: And that's what this is. I mean he's a professor of medieval studies. he's not a ghost hunter he's not a a person who um, has had experiences and so they went and explored I mean that might be part of the the genesis of why he chose this topic and why he's exploring this in medieval and in its kind of uh early incarnations but you know this is this is academia this is you know a level of acceptance that um, both religion forms our ideas about the paranormal, and then the paranormal forms our ideas about religion.
0: There there does seem to be, though, uh, and we'll discuss this with Scott a little bit later on, too, there seems to be a, a blatant ignorance amongst those who are involved in, quote-unquote, ghost research to be able to place some of these stories in that context. You know, for them, it is uh, just about everything that they've learned from uh, the books that they've read or from the... Uh, you know, the TV shows that they've seen right. or or just the other groups that they've encountered, the other investigators they've encountered, they, they don't really have a historical basis for this. You know, history for them might go as far back as maybe the Fox sisters, if if we're lucky.
1: Right, right. And, it, you know, he does a really good job, I think, of examining some ideas that are still prevalent today um, in the paranormal and then some that haven't been touched upon. And And what he... What I think the book does best um because you know its it's it's a difficult read. it's not um hey let's you know let's pick up some some light reading i mean he these are translations these are you know he's editing pretty much like writing for fifteen hundred years of history it's not it's not easy um but he does a really good job of uh, bringing things together that allow you to see. You know, here's how these ideas evolved. You know, and, and I'd be interested to in talk with him tonight if he's um, through doing this. Found stuff that was not necessarily older, but but you know, in the the 1600s going forward to connect some of those ideas because you know people aren't people aren't familiar with these ideas in the context that the book is written in. In terms of you know, they haven't read these. They may have read um Hamlet they may have read uh, a Christmas carol but they haven't necessarily read the the writings of the popes uh and the stories that were collected and and you know this really is kind of their story and so and it's their ideas but they're the ones that have kind of formed the way that we think about goes for Three thousand, four thousand years.
0: They probably just got the first book of the Time Life, you know, Stories of the Pope series, and just canceled after that.
1: So <laughs> you know, I had a hard, I had a hard time figuring out which Pope was which. So, you know, I made little action figures to see who was talking and how the ideas changed.
0: See, that that's what you should have had the um, the Tops Pope Collector Trading Card Set that I had growing up.
1: <laughs> I did. I lost it in, in the uh, in the fire, I guess.
0: The the gum was direct from the Vatican vault, so you could actually. <laughs> You could actually taste the sterilized air. Uh, it would be but,
1: better if it was from wafers, you know, instead of gum in there, but what are you going to do?
0: Oh, uh, uh, around these parts, <laughs> there'd probably be Nico wafer <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, you know, we did that show a couple weeks ago where we talked about little Debbie snacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think people around here, uh, people outside of this area understand how terrible Nico wafers are because they're kind of a New England thing, but yep. those might be the worst can Actually, they are loosely stretching the definition of the word candy with those.
1: You know, and I used to walk by the factory all the way, uh, you know, every night coming back, going from the Middle East to my, my dorm at Emerson. And we go, there's a nickel Vector. And, uh, yeah, it didn't, you know, smell that good either. Although it, I'm not even sure if it was still working.
0: For those who have never experienced it, let me describe it as this Imagine eating, like, a breath saver's mint without any type of breath saving peppermint properties to it. Like, that's pretty much the only way I can describe it.
1: I was thinking the, the, the structure, the molecular structure of a sweet tart, but not
0: sweet. Or tart.
1: It or really, tart. It
0: just had no flavor whatsoever. <laughs> so, I mean, all right. That's kind of our little... Uh, did you just catch on camera me sucking out of the two-liter two bottle of Coke, Matt? Uh, a second? little bit, yeah. All right, good. Glad, glad that we did. We're going to get that Coca-Cola sponsorship going. Right.
1: I think it's interesting. We probably sucked at the same time because I just had some coffee, so...
0: Well, <laughs> we'll be sucking together for two hours as we uh, as we wait for Scott. Scott Bruce is going to save the show, though, when we start talking with him about some of these topics. But before we get into that, I do want to mention something that's been going around the paranormal field, the paranormal community, whatever you want to call it, uh, but basically paranormal social media over the last couple of days. The other day, uh, the news broke that Ryan Buell, who is known for his work on Paranormal State, was arrested on felony charges of theft and stolen property. Uh, he was on, also arrested on a misdemeanor charge of theft of services. That stems back to his 2014 Conversations with the Dead tour that he booked across the U.S. and Canada, where he sold, uh, I think the number I saw was around $80,000 mm-hmm. worth of tickets, and then canceled the shows, didn't pay any of the venues, pocketed all the money, never gave any refunds, uh, which he blamed on his pancreatic cancer, which the world still is not exactly sure if he actually has, uh, because he seems to be doing pretty well health-wise for somebody who had pancreatic cancer and has shown no other signs of it, uh, but this whole new case has something to do with uh, with taking a rental car and and just all kinds of problems, so uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out for him. But how does this reflect on, in your opinion, Chris, the paranormal world? Are people going to look at other investigators, uh, especially those who are the quote-unquote celebrity ghost hunters, with crossed eyes now based on the fact that this guy has become such a a well-known scam artist and now criminal? I mean,
1: I think that anyone who would have a negative opinion of the paranormal um, has already seen this coming. I mean, this is just more of like, you know, in terms of him himself – no one was surprised at, to see this. No one in the paranormal field was surprised to see this. It was just a matter of time. Um, so I think that any damage he might have done, you know, they're, they're, they're big headlines. All the headlines mention, you know, Ghost Hunter does this. Um, but I think that, like, you know, the damage that he did to the paranormal field in terms of, you know, their reliability in terms of these conferences and things like that, I think that's been done. I think that that he, you know, he kind of, bad couple of years and a lot of people, I, th- I think, are more hesitant to like join the, the the bigger conferences and things like that because of that. But I'm not sure if this is going to revive something because I think it's already out there.
0: Well, I'm going to first of all, the first question I'll ask is, you know, and We've talked about this before, uh, probably off the air, but maybe on the air as well, where, you know, if you are involved in this research, if you're involved in this world, and there's something that you do that makes headlines, that's what people are gonna gravitate toward. It becomes kind of a, uh, you know, it's something that looks really cool in a headline when it's a positive story about you, but it's something that can be very damning when it's a negative story.
1: Right. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, we've discussed whether or not to bring up different cases that have happened to people who are famous and things like that, and, and our rule of thumb seems to have always been, if it doesn't have to do with the work, then we don't bring it up, um, whether it's, you know, personal tragedies or whether it's things that have gone wrong or, or being arrested, uh, we've seemed to shy away from, you know, things that are not having to do with the paranormal that might involve paranormal people. But this is something that very directly is related to his paranormal work because it's something that, um, in a lot of ways, maybe even more than the, um, the shows themselves. For people who are true fans, this is kind of the heartbeat of the paranormal. Going to these conferences, going to events, like that's where they get to go out and, and touch it. Um, and, you know so it's 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 completely fine with me that the the news has come out and been you know thrown that word ghost hunter or paranormal investigator in every headline and i think that it's okay for us to um, present it, present the negative things that happen, because it is something that is that is that that is impactful to what we do.
0: Well, the reason why I, I take issue with it, though, is because it makes it too easy for people to start to make the connection, which a lot of people did when this news broke about Ryan Buell, because you know, uh, for those of you who watch the show, in addition to feeding, you know, strawberries to buckwudgies, one of the main storyline points <laughs> for a number of seasons was the fact that Ryan Buell felt this one particular demon was chasing after him, and that he was constantly battling this one particular demon on, on multiple cases. And so immediately this goes, this happens, and people are like, well, you know, no matter what his issue is, uh, I mean, drug addiction, cause let's face it, he looks, he looks like a coked out Sylvester Stallone, and his, in some of the profile pictures. So, uh, the, uh, Mug mugshot pictures, I mean. Uh, people are making that leap in logic and saying, well, you know, the demon must be weighing on him, and it's not his fault, and, you know, he's, he's fallen victim to these negative forces that he did battle against for so long. And I think we're giving this guy who is obviously, you know, making questionable decisions with his life, we're trying to give him an easy out by blaming it on something otherworldly.
1: Um, yeah, and I remember very specifically us doing a show where we covered that uh, uh, in detail. That you know, um, that idea of uh, are the tragedies that befall paranormal investigators um, based on this idea that that we are uh, marked somehow. Um, you know, and first of all, who's to say that it's not that? You know, right? Um, but I don't think I don't really think that it's. Um, I think the counter to that is the idea that um his mom has come out very clearly and been like this is nothing else other than him making bad decisions. Now she doesn't very specifically say, you know, it's not any kind of demon who he's been, you know, chasing who's been chasing after. She doesn't make that kind of connection. But she goes a long way in almost all the articles I, I I read um they quote her as being very clear of, like, this is his issue. It's not anything else other than, like, the things that he's been involved in. So those, you know, there is a counter out there if people are willing to uh, dig deeper into it, and they don't have to dig that deep.
0: Well, Of course, we can always discuss this uh, in further detail with you. Uh, You can follow us on Facebook, like us on Facebook. You can tweet us at SpookySC or use the hashtag SpookyLive so we can continue this conversation with you off air if you have opinions and thoughts on that as well. But We're going to be joined in just a moment by our guest tonight, Scott Bruce. It is the Penguin Book of the Undead, 1,500 years of supernatural encounters, and it's all in one volume. So you you can uh, check it out. For yourself, uh, it is gonna be released, what'd you say, Tuesday, Chris, is the release date for it officially? Uh, that's what Amazon has for it. Well, I can so. tell you, I saw the new, I saw the cover, you know, we got the uncorrected proof cover, which is just very basic, uh, but I saw the actual cover that's coming out, and it's, it's pretty creepy. It might, if, if I get a copy of that, I'm gonna have to do what I do with communion, and you know, hide the cover of the book behind another book so I never have to look at it. <laughs>
1: Although I kind of want a poster of it in my room, so that would look awesome. We'll have to Just, have to hit him up for that, or great. or in my classroom, so that you know that the parents can continue to think my room is a room of evil.
0: <laughs> I like how you said continue to think. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we take a break? When we come back on the other side, we'll be joined by Scott Bruce. And uh, don't forget, you can also call in at any point during the show with questions for our guest five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty. You can. Also go to our chat room on our YouTube channel, and also, Matt, is the chat working on SpookySouthCoast.com as well? Uh, I know you had some issues with it, but... uh, It is working if you're already logged into uh, YouTube. Okay, so you can go to SpookySouthCoast.com, you can go to YouTube, to our YouTube channel, either way, and you can join in the discussion via the chat room there, and you can also tweet us questions... At Spooky SC, or just use the hashtag Spooky Live. We'll be back in just a moment with more Spooky South Coast here on WBSM and also broadcast rebroadcasting on the Dark Matter Radio Network. And welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Sorry, Matt, I didn't give you any music there to come in from. But uh, Tim Weisberg here, along with the Silent Assassin Matt Costa, and Content Director Chris Balzano is with us as well. And uh, we are going to be joined in just a second by our guest tonight. Don't forget, to throughout the course of the show, if you want to call in, 508-996-0500. You can also join us in the chat room on both our live streaming YouTube channel as well as uh, on SpookySouthCoast.com if you want to do that as well. So you can get involved in the conversation throughout the course of the discussion. Uh, but now we're going to welcome in tonight's guest. Scott Bruce is an expert on medieval monasticism, monasticism, sorry, a professor of medieval history and the director of the Center for Medieval and Early Modern Studies at the University of Colorado Boulder. He put himself through college working as a gravedigger. His expertise and his enthusiasm for connections between his work and popular culture make him an ideal interview for us tonight. As he talks about his new book, The Penguin Book of the Undead, he is the editor of this big volume, 1500 Years of Supernatural Encounters, and he joins us on the show. Uh, good evening, Scott. How are you? Good Hi, doing, Tim. I'm well. Thanks for having me. Uh, so excited to have you. Been looking forward to this discussion. Uh, and of course, we also have uh, Matt Costas here, and Chris Balzano is on the line as well. So the questions will be coming at you fast and furious all night long.
2: Fantastic.
0: And I, I have to ask you, in you know putting this all together that says it right in the in the subtitle 1500 years of supernatural encounters i gotta tell you that a lot of our audience might not be aware of some of these stories going all that far back is this something that you've always been aware of the fact that you know throughout antiquity there were all of these stories of ghosts and of paranormal connections
2: uh, certainly not um when i first began the project um I began it with the medieval monks who are the subject of the chapter called Spectral Servants of the Church. Um, so my research is about monks of the Abbey of Cluny in France uh, in the 10th, 11th, and 12th centuries. And as it turns out, the Cluniacs were very interested in telling ghost stories. Um, and so that piqued my interest, and then I started to do some more research. and um, And as it turns out, ghosts are part of the Western tradition going back to the earliest human literature really back to ancient greek epic, um and and so the, the more digging i did the more i found
0: but is there i mean obviously we've evolved in our definition of ghost and we've evolved in some of our theories and beliefs as to what we think it is has there always been kind of throughout history this concept of it being a departed soul which i would probably call the predominant theory today but as all is that also what it was throughout history as well
2: well it it depends on what kind of um uh, what kind of undead we're talking about um in the middle ages in the European middle ages they didn't have a word for undead uh, it wasn't a category for them um, so they talked about visions of the dead they talked about incorporeal spirits that appeared um, they talked about corpses that rose from the graves uh, and walked around um, and each of these things had different meanings for them um, but more often than not, what we're dealing with, what they thought they were dealing with, was the spirits of or the souls of people who had died.
1: And I think in even <laughs> I I think even and I get to go first. Um in, in our modern definition of it, we don't think of the undead as ghosts. We don't think of ghosts as being undead, we think of them as the dead who are making contact with us we think of the undead we think of dracula we think of vampires we think of zombies especially today um so even that term is not necessarily kind of made it through
2: the middle ages to today no that's that's absolutely true i agree with you there and there's and again they were they had all different kinds of terminology to describe these encounters they they really wrestled with the idea of what these things were and they tended to lean on metaphor. Um, they tended to use words that talked about spirits as being like um, clouds or breaths uh, breaths or um, they use different words like that. Um, shade is one that comes up over and over again in the Latin sources the word umbra to describe them. Um, and so but this when but when you look at enough of these stories over time, you begin to see some um, consistent ways of talking about these things. Um, the dead when they do appear seem to appear as they were in life. They're recognizable as personal as individual personalities. They're offering they're often carrying attributes of who they were in life. They almost always bear the marks of their deaths, especially if their deaths were violent. So they, they're they have visible wounds, they're covered in blood. Um so there's these 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 uh these different traits carry on from the ancient Greeks through the Romans into the medieval period. But then there are some interesting shifts, too, that we really can't explain. Um, some of the spirits that come back from the dead, as you know from some of the stories in the book, first appear as animals before turning into their human form. Um, it really depends on where the stories are told. And one of the fascinating things about the history of ghosts uh, in the Western tradition is how localized some of these stories can be. Um, how, how you know, if you just go a few hundred miles in one direction or another, the ghosts change with the landscape.
0: Well, you know, we like to ask the big questions early on in the interview here on Spooky South Coast. and So why is it that all of these cultures have ghost stories? Why is it that all of these peoples going back in, so far in time, why is it that we just can't accept the fact that death could possibly just be death and that's it, there's nothing more?
2: You know, I... I really don't know. I think that that's much, it's it's to our detriment, really. I mean, one of the most, one of the amazing things about these ancient and medieval communities is their sense of continuity um, with the members of their community who have died. Um, And that may just well be because in the ancient world and in the medieval world, let's just face it, like in in the world before the 20th century, before we had modern medicine, people were confronted with death on a regular basis. The mortality rates were much higher death was not hidden away in hospitals or places like that. You regularly saw family members and often siblings dying. And part of the way, and I don't want to come up with a silly a silly kind of psychological explanation to this, but there's an emotional response here. It's too much to give up on these people who've known in life so briefly. Um, we, in the modern period with our really, really long life spans relative to the ancient and medieval period, and our ability to withstand so many of the different things that, um, you know, that killed them. I mean, at the age of eleven, I had appendicitis, and that would have been it for me before the nineteenth century. Um, they, they they just simply encountered death uh, on on a much more regular basis, and and one of their ways of dealing with that was to say, "This is not the end. This is this is something we're going to carry on with. These are this is still my family. These are still my friends. So long as my my memory of them is intact." So long as I include them in the rituals of my life, then they are not—they're not gone. And and really, our our distancing ourselves from death, our inability to really cope with people dying in our presence, in our houses, on our streets, even as it has happened in the ancient and medieval world all the time. I mean, we we've distanced ourselves from all of that, um, and and you know, it's it's to our detriment. I think really um they were much more in tune with with both the the kind of fragility and the vulnerability of their own lives and their impending deaths but also with the fact that that wasn't the end for them one of the things that you may have noticed in the book were 1500 years of stories and one of the things one of the themes that almost never comes up in these stories is doubt there are very few instances in the stories where we see someone actually doubting that what they're seeing is a spirit of the dead
0: no, that's true. Yeah. That's a good point.
2: No, and it's, I think it's very striking. We, we Categorically, our culture today, doubts these kind of occurrences. We want empirical proof and all this kind of stuff. But for them, they, were, they, were, they lived in a world, in an imaginative world, where they were surrounded by invisible beings, both benign and malevolent. But also, the, the, the dead surrounded them, too. Um, this was just part of the way they viewed their world. And it's something that we've really lost. I mean, certainly as of the 19th century. Um, Do you think um, part of that might have been
1: um, both the uh, familiarity they had with the ghosts that they were encountering, and the fact that their driving force in life, their religion, uh, was openly talking about it? I know those are two very different issues, but kind of the huge issues of their lives. But. You know so many of the of the encounters you talk about in the book are relatives or people they know or people they can identify with, so they would be more likely to um, accept them and then the other part of it is the 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 religious aspect we have you know their popes, their religious leaders telling them that this is something that's part of their
2: life well, I, I think that the religious aspect of it is absolutely true, but what is so striking about that is that it is the continuity from Greek and Roman paganism through to christianity the christians for the most part wholeheartedly adopted and inherited their idea of the restless dead from the pagans who came before them there's only one text in the book really which is and again these are not so much ghost stories in the way that we think of ghost stories but in one of the chapters of the book um... we see uh... in the early fifth century a bishop who has recently converted to christianity and has been made a leader of the church and he has a congregation who are filled with recent converts to the Church, because right around that time, Roman paganism had been abolished, and the Roman emperors had all converted to Christianity, and everybody was told, okay, you know, we're going to be Christians now. But then that left them with a whole bunch of questions. And one of the questions was, how do we understand all these ghosts that we keep seeing? (laughs) You know, how do we understand it when the dead return? And um, this leads this bishop in North Africa, his name is Avodius, and he writes to one of his fellow bishops, uh, the, the great St. Augustine, and asks him, What am I to do with all these stories? My parishioners keep telling me about the stories of, and, and we keep seeing dead people, so what does this mean? And it leads him to ruminate on the nature of the soul. Is the soul material then? You know, are, is the soul like a body because I can see people coming back from the dead? And Augustine is, he's, he's one of the very few people in this entire tradition who says, No. <laughs> Ghosts are not material. You can, you know, you're you're just imagining it. Um, it's in your head, and um, God knows, but I don't know. Um, and Augustine was a very, very he exerted a very powerful influence on later thinkers, in part because he wrote so much. But many later thinkers, in fact, most later Christian thinkers, very politely ignored Augustine on this because they, in fact, wanted to believe and continued to believe, like so many other people in their society, that of course the dead return. Um, of course, they come back when they have things to tell us. Of course they come back with knowledge that we couldn't know otherwise that's sometimes important to us and especially they come back when they're not happy. And he was the
1: one who was writing about uh, dreams and how um, exactly you know these things that are going on are not necessarily, the undead just because you're dreaming them because you could dream about me. Because there's a very tight connection that you write about between people's dreaming life
2: and their belief in the paranormal. Well, this is it: is that One of the ways in the ancient world especially, and again, medieval people adopted this as well, um, one of the ways that the dead come to you is they come to you in your dreams. And it's a process that they call incubation. So if, if you want to have an encounter with the dead, if there's something you need to talk to a dead person about, um, you would go to a shrine, preferably one that is very close to the entryway to the underworld, this is in, in Greek and Roman thought, um, you know, some place where the membrane between the world of the living and the world of the dead is especially thin, and then you would sleep there. And presumably, hopefully for you, the dead the dead would come into your dreams and they would talk to you in your dreams so so incubation is one way of doing this sleeping and dreaming of the dead is is certainly one way of doing this and that has a very long tradition um but that also doesn't stop the dead from actually manifesting appearing in human form usually incorporeal ghost-like shade-like um especially if they're upset and so many of these stories, I mean, we tell ghost stories, I mean, in the nineteenth and twentieth centuries, the famous gothic ghost stories or the ghost stories of M. R. James or any numerous twentieth century authors, these are told for entertainment value and they're they're meant to, you know, to scare us and to delight us as they do. But um, these stories of ghosts so many of the stories in this collection, they're didactic. They're teaching stories. They're they're stories to teach you how to behave. To how to how to maintain your proper relationship with the with the dead in the other world. Um, You may have noticed that many of the ghosts that come back do so and because they're restless and they're restless because they haven't been buried properly. And this was a huge issue in the ancient world that everybody should respect the dead and everybody has to look after the mortal remains of people who have died. You have to bury people properly and with reverence. Even on the battlefield, you, know, you you fight against your enemy on the battlefield. You get, you know, you know, Greeks fighting, um, you know, their their eastern enemies or whomever. And when the battle's done, you bury the dead of your enemy because you don't want ghosts haunting that landscape. You have to do reverence to the dead. And many of the ghosts that come back come back because they are looking for they're they're looking for rest. They're, they they've not been treated properly, or even worse, they've been forgotten. And that's where um, the ideas
1: are really. Um explains a lot of the, the ghosts of uh, civil war in terms of on the American soil because people didn't have that good death. They didn't have those people around them. They they were they were dying in a different part of the country, often with yeah. limbs removed. And, and so that idea kind of carried over and kind of came back up again in kind of a little bit of a different way during the civil war, which explains why there's so many
2: civil war ghosts. Oh, absolutely. and And it's so interesting you would say that because some of the various very earliest mentions of ghosts that we have, and again this is going back to Homer's odyssey, when Odysseus goes, you know, opens the gateway to the underworld through a necromantic spell to talk to the Egyptian seer Tiresias because he has to get advice on how to get home, as the ghosts begin to crowd around the site and are called to the site by his ritual, there are, there are many different kinds of ghosts, but the one that Homer really picks out, he says, the great hordes of battle dead. You know, the soldiers who are still in their beaten armor and blood-stained armor still holding their weapons because they were killed violently at a young age and often lay unburied. And so so from the very beginning, we have a tradition of an association between ghosts and war.
0: Uh, well, we are just about uh, out of time in this hour. Uh, we'll be coming up on the news in just a few moments, but we'll, of course, continue this discussion after the news, and we welcome your calls and your thoughts at 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420, or you can send them to us in our chat room on com, and also on our live streaming YouTube channel as well, or on Twitter using the hashtag spooky live. I think, though, uh, Scott, when we're talking about You know, looking at some of these battlefield ghosts, you know, we, we deal with it here, uh, on the south coast of Massachusetts because we had King Philip's War back in, uh, the late 1600s, but we understand here the concept of you know, old ghosts, the idea that some of these spirits that we're dealing with now could have been around then, but we also seem to have kind of a, a window, a, a certain time period of how far back we can go with our spirits. I can only imagine that some of these stories uh, of these ancient ghost encounters are still resonating with people today. They're still coming across and experiencing these the, the spirits of, of these long-forgotten people
2: they certainly are the, the, the tale I mean the, these tales have been preserved for in some cases literally thousands of years I mean they're stories that people tell and retell um, and they're, they're very specific
0: oh, I, think, I think we're losing you a little bit there I'm sorry. You're, you're just cutting a little bit out on us there Scott I think we might have lost you no no I'm still here okay okay there's just the signal is dropping. I think it's the, the ghosts are deciding that they don't want you to answer. <laughs> but it, it does seem, too, like uh, it, we, we do kind of, you know, as Chris was saying before, they're, they're spirits that you have an emotional attachment to. That's why, you know, so often it's family members that you hear in a lot of these stories because we want to have some sort of attachment to them. And it's kind of hard for some people to have an attachment to uh figures that might have existed in the time of Homer.
2: Mm-hmm. No, well I mean the I mean again, the, the emotional impact of some of this early literature just it just goes to show how how deep these family ties were, how how hard it was for people to let them go, how I mean I mean one of the one of the most amazing things about studying ancient texts and medieval texts is this sense over the, across the gulf of all these centuries that separate us from these people who were writing these texts, is that they responded emotionally very much the same way that we do, to loss, to mourning, to to these kind of very basic human emotions. Um, it's so striking in the story of uh, when Odysseus summons the ghosts up to talk to Tiresias, and he's looking around at the crowd of ghosts that have come to drink the blood of the offering, uh, you can learn a great deal about necromancy, ancient necromancy from this book. But one of the people that he sees is his mother. And he hasn't even realized, he doesn't know because he's been away, that his mother has died. And his emotional response to her is one of the most powerful scenes, I think, in, in ancient literature. Um, and so, yeah, that's, it's, it's all laid bare on the page. These family connections are deeply important. And uh, just because they lived ages and ages ago, they responded very much the same way we do.
0: Well, we're going to explore this topic a little bit more coming up in the next hour. Uh, in the meantime, during the break, uh, Scott, why don't you let everybody know how they can find out more about you by, by checking you out online?
2: Um, yes, absolutely. Um, you can you can go to my website, which is www.medievalimagination.com. Um, and there's all sorts of stuff about me. Um, and the Penguin Book of the Undead is coming out on Tuesday. Right now on Facebook, Penguin Classics is doing a giveaway for the book. If you go on to the Penguin Classics Facebook page and scroll down a tiny bit, you'll see uh, the uh, the cover of the book, which is terrifying, and uh, they've done a wonderful animation of it. And if you just add a comment to that, you will be in the lottery to win the book.
0: Excellent. All right. Well, people can check that out during the break. We'll be back with our guest, Scott Bruce, coming up in just a few minutes with more here on Spooky South Coast. And uh, definitely check him out online during the break. And make sure that you uh, get your copy, get your advance copy, because i got a feeling, being number one already in pre-sales, this thing's going to sell out fast. So make sure you get a copy when it comes out. We'll be right back with more in just a few. Number two of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, content director Chris Balzano, and Stephanie Burke has joined us. Good evening, Stephanie.
3: Good evening. How are you?
0: You came in during the interview, so we didn't want to I did interrupt the flow of the conversation to say hello, but now we say hello. Hello. Good to see you again. It's been a while.
3: I know it has been a while. Since like what,
0: like last Halloween?
3: No, not that bad. It's been a while. But I think the last show that I was here was actually August, so...
0: Well, good to have you back. And uh, we are talking with our guest, Scott Bruce. He's the editor of the new book, The Penguin Book of the Undead. And we are talking with him about some of these crazy ghost stories that go all the way back to ancient times. But if you want to hear some ghost stories that aren't quite as old but still... Uh, in in my opinion, just as interesting and entertaining, well, then you want to come out to an evening of ghost stories and New England legends. It's happening this Tuesday night at the Company Theater in Norwell, Massachusetts. It's uh, myself, Jeff Belanger, Carl Johnson, and Andrew Lake telling real New England ghost stories set to the photos of Frank Grace. And if you have never seen Frank's work, I'm sure that you have. If you're a fan of the show, you've seen it for all of our events and for the Legend Trips events and for uh, the different posts that we've put up. Uh, about different um, about different local haunts. Uh, Frank takes these ridiculously creepy photographs. It's like a ghost story in a single photograph. And uh, we set his photos on a giant screen behind us while we tell these stories. And we've done it a few times now to great success, to great acclaim. Now we are bringing it to the Company Theater in Norwell on Tuesday. And I can tell you that the theater is almost completely sold out.
3: I heard it was sold out.
0: It is officially
3: sold out? I heard you cannot get tickets online. You have to call. And there might be a, a couple singles left.
0: The, I would say the last that I had heard uh, just the other day was that all that was left was singles.
3: I think I heard that about two days ago.
0: So I was going to say, like, if you wanted to go and, you, you know. You
3: might have to call and see so if they have a couple singles.
0: It's the perfect excuse to not have to bring your significant other. You can be like, right. well, I'm sorry. I couldn't get two tickets together. So. But it
3: makes sense why it's sold out because it's an awesome show. I actually got well, to see you. it in, uh pre-rehearsal, I guess you could call it, practice and um I was blown away completely blown away by the talent of these guys. We've only
0: gotten better too. And for those of you who have seen the story, uh, seen the show before, we swap out stories and we keep it fresh. We've changed some of the things uh, kind of in between. So even though, you know, you might hear a story and be like, "Oh, I remember when they told this story last time." It might not be exactly the same as you remember. So, you know, it's just like when you go to see your favorite band, you want to hear them play the hits, right? Of course. Like, God forbid Chris Balzano ever went to see Hanson and they didn't play Umbop, He wouldn't know what to do.
3: That is awesome that we're bringing that up right now.
0: So, you know. This that would be an abomination. Is... Exactly. So we have to do some of the greatest hits, but we'll also mix in some of the new songs as well that's the way i like to look at it all right well let's get back into the discussion with our guest scott bruce and again if you have any questions and you'd like to join in the conversation 508-996-0500 877-996-1420 uh scott one of the questions that i'll ask you just as being you know the the editor of this volume and combining all these stories how did it come about that you started putting this book together
2: um well it was it was pure luck um uh, I was working on a monastic project, uh, an amazing 12th century collection of miracles that was written by an abbot of the monastery I study in Sunni, and it had some ghost stories in it, and at around the same time I happened to get the ear of an editor of Penguin Classics, and um, and I, and I pitched this miracle collection to him as something that I could translate for his series, and he, he basically said in very polite terms, no one would ever be interested in reading that. Um, and so, uh, he did like the idea of ghost stories, though. And, um, so he said, Well, tell me, is it, does, you know, do ghost stories have a, a long tradition? And I said, Well, absolutely. Um, you know, I knew enough about it at that point to make the claim. Um, they had, they were just, Penguin Classics was just about to publish Catherine Howe's wonderful The Penguin Book of Witches. And, um, so I think the timing was right. They were interested in a follow up. Um, uh, and, uh, and this collection came together. Um, I was very fortunate that I I had uh, eight months of research leave last year where I was a visiting fellow at the University of Cambridge in the U.K., um, and that, that gave me the time to do many of these translations.
0: So, And then you have to actually go and, and collect all these together and... Kind of figure out exactly how they all fit together. I mean, I, I think the oldest story that I've ever told in one of my you know ghost lectures is you know I'll talk about like Pliny the Younger, and people will just stand uh-huh. there and scratch their heads and say, uh, I don't understand any of this stuff that you're talking about. You know, I only know ghost stories as far back as you know Abraham Lincoln's ghost.
2: Right. Yeah. No. No. It does. It does have an older tradition, and and it was. I mean, um, one of the ways that I, one of the ways that I gave this collection its logic and its flow is that um I, I taught it last year as a as a course at the University of Colorado called uh, Ghost Stories in the Western Tradition from the Romans to the Renaissance. Um and that really helped me, you know, then you know, I can't just throw out random things to my students. They expect a coherent story. Um and and so teaching the class was was hugely important. Um it, it helped me put all the pieces together as we read the text together. We obviously have different students.
1: <laughs> My students never expect coherent thought.
2: <laughs> well, these ones, yeah, the, the course was a big enough hit that I'm doing it again this semester, and the students are the students are really into it. It's, it's a good group. It's a self-selecting group.
1: <laughs> I know medieval studies is your specialty, but I mean, what were do you know what other cultures were thinking about ghosts at the same time as these?
2: Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I had the opportunity, you know, for for my work I present my research all over the world and I was last year I was in Jerusalem uh for a week or so and um presenting on some of this material and so many Jewish scholars came up to me and they said, there Are there gonna be Jewish stories in the book? And I said, Oh, I had no idea that in medieval Judaism there was a of ghost story. I said, Oh of course there is <laughs> Um, unfortunately I don't read Hebrew, so it it, it um there was a, a bit of a barrier there. I could only work in traditions where I could actually translate the languages myself. But one could easily have an entire volume of, of medieval Jewish ghost stories. It seems to be a very, very rich tradition. Um, and certainly in Asian cultures, too, um, you know, the, the hungry ghosts of medieval China are well-known. Um, I just don't have the language facility to be able to, to bring those to a wider public.
0: Well, uh, first of all, Chris, you should learn by now, never send a photo to Matt Kossa unless you absolutely want it used on the show. <laughs> That was a great picture. <laughs> but, uh, there's a, a good question from, uh, from Corey in the chat room and, and he wants to know what you would actually consider, Scott, to be the first ghost story, at least the earliest recorded ghost story that you could find.
2: Well, that's a, that's a really, really great question. I mean, we have to go back to some of the most ancient texts that we have. Um, the earliest mentions that we have of ghosts actually turn up in texts that describe necromantic rituals. Um, and some of these are, are very famous. The, the book opens with um, an excerpt from Homer's Odyssey, uh, where Odysseus calls up ghosts from the underworld in order to consult with a, an Egyptian seer who's going to help him get home. But then... By chance, he's also talking to other ghosts. He talks to the ghost of his mother. He talks to the ghost of one of his dead crewmen. He sees all different manner of ghosts. But that's not a haunting. That's, that's, he's seeking the ghosts out because they have knowledge that he needs. Similarly, in the Hebrew scriptures, um, you know, there's the very famous story of the witch of Endor who summons up the ghost of the prophet Samuel for King Saul. Um, this is a very, very strange story in some ways. I mean, it's a very well-known story uh it's strange because elsewhere in the hebrew scriptures in the book of deuteronomy there are very specific and stringent prohibitions against necromancy you know you should not talk to the dead you should not raise dead spirits and here we have one of the kings king of the israelites summoning up the spirit of one of his advisors who is a prophet who has since died to get his help when he's on this on the verge of military Defeat. Um, the prophet is no help at all. He just foretells his doom. Uh, but, uh, so that's, those are two of the most ancient stories of hauntings, and they are both firmly within the necromantic tradition. Um, the classic early ghost story is the one you mentioned, Tim. It's really the story from Pliny about the haunted house in Athens. Um, where the, the, the house is haunted by a spirit and nobody wants to live there, and a, a philosopher comes from out of town and, he sees that the rent is cheap, and he's like, wow, this is a good deal, I'm going to live in this house. And then, but he's suspicious, and he asks around, and people say, oh, the house is haunted. But he doesn't let that deter him. And so he rents the house and confronts the ghost. And here we have a, what I would consider to be a very classic ghost, an incorporeal old man with chains rattling and making spooky sounds. And the, the philosopher overcomes the ghost by simply ignoring him and trying not to be scared. And it' and allows the ghost to express what is really his concern which is that he's lying in an unmarked grave on the property and so the philosopher having followed the ghost outside and watching watch where the ghost disappears puts a marker down on the grass and and calls in the civic the civil magistrates and they dig up the spot and lo and behold there's the body in chains um, and, un, and not properly buried and once he is you know once he's He's uh, buried properly and the chains are taken off of him and whatnot, then the house turns back to normal. So in some ways that, the story of Pliny, which which is in the books here, and it's a very well-known story, is, is, is really the first haunted house story or first haunting story where we really see all the attributes of, you know, it's, it's reminiscent of Dickens and it's reminiscent of the, the visit that Scrooge gets from his old partner, you know, the ghost in chains who's making lots of
0: noise. It, it's funny, though, because if you look at the way that the way we tell ghost stories has changed and the way that we kind of defined define some of the things within these parameters, you know, we look now more of necromancy as being, you know, raising the dead, almost like a physical corporeal version of the dead. And oh, I don't yeah. think today's paranormal researchers realize that when they go out there and they're just basically turning on a tape recorder and asking questions, they're practicing necromancy, at least in the traditional sense. <laughs> <laughs>
2: That's true. That's really yeah. Absolutely. I mean, next, the origin of the word necromancy is really divination by means of speaking to the dead. The whole idea is that you summon a dead spirit to come up, and you then you compel it by spells to speak to you, because they, sometimes they're reluctant to speak. They don't want to talk to you if they don't know you. But mind you, that's one of the things that's so interesting about this tradition, is that the dead are, are very chatty. They really like to talk about, especially how they die, they really like to talk about their... The, the, the way that they left the world, and um, and they're, they're generally speaking happy to talk, but some are reluctant. Um, there's a one of the most haunting stories in the, in the book is um, from a first century C.E. account of the civil war that took place um, at the fall of the Roman Republic, um, and this is Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony and others who are fighting one another, and and in the course of these wars. Um, the the uh, son of Pompeii, one of the leaders, one of the military leaders, consults uh, a necromancer, a woman, who lives in Thessaly, and the, the story describes in incredible detail how she finds a body, it's a recently dead soldier, she finds him on a battlefield, and compels his ghost to return, his soul to return to the body, and how reluctant the soul is to do so, because it has only just left and gone to the afterlife. It doesn't want to come back into this body in which it has just left. It doesn't want to inhabit the corpse, as it were. And then she has to cast spells on it to compel it to speak, because it already has information uh, that it has learned in the realm of the dead. It has insights that will allow it to talk about the course of the war. Um and so this is what this is the true you know, the true meaning of necromancy is basically an interview with the dead. It's not so much the resurrection and, and animation of dead bodies, um, which is which is a quite common way to to think about it. that doesn't mean that dead bodies weren't animating and walking around in the Middle Ages. It's just people explained it in different ways.
0: And you and, and make reference uh, to the fact that you know the ghost story as we know it. Uh, kind of came about, you know, kind of in the Victorian age, uh, certainly in the, the post-spiritualism era, but a lot of the ghost stories that we tell today are for the purposes of, you know, it's almost like a parable. Uh, we're we're telling you know look at dickens for example you know he's dealing with these ghosts as a way to kind of examine certain issues within his own life and examine uh scrooge is looking at issues within himself and his own personality flaws in order to make himself better and were a lot of these ancient ghost stories these older ghost stories kind of the same idea the idea that they were used more as a teaching tool as it was to be something that was taken verbatim
2: yes i mean i mean. They can be both, and I think that they were both to people at the time. There was, there was, there was. Nobody would ever say, and I've certainly never seen anybody say it in an ancient or medieval text. um, It's great to tell those ghost stories because they teach us a valuable lesson about something other than ghosts, and they're not real. Um, They're 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 actually. You know, the the way they thought about it was ghosts are absolutely real, and they have something valuable to tell us. Um, And certainly, by the time the Christians begin to take over Roman ghost stories and Roman the Roman belief in ghosts. Um, over the course of several centuries, in what we would now call the Dark Ages after the well, we try not to say that anymore, but after the fall of the Roman Empire in the in the fifth, the sixth, the the seventh centuries, we see Christian thinkers trying to work out, well, where do where do the dead actually go in our Christian belief system and who are these spirits that are coming back? Because there's a whole Literature about the saints and the very holy Christians who go immediately to heaven when they die, and somebody in the chat had had said had raised a very poignant question about, well, you know, was our stories about Jesus is that are those some of the first ghost stories because Jesus comes back from the dead? Um, those stories are purposely not included in this book. Um, those are very very you know in the Christian tradition those are considered to be very special people, very unusual people, very holy people. Um, And they regularly make Appearances after their deaths Um, But they do so coming from heaven You know they're in the company of God And they come back and there's a whole literature hagiography, the writing about the lives Of the saints that is devoted to them Um, I'm not so much interested In those stories, I'm interested in the Everyday dead who come back People like you and me Um, And those Dead, they have something to communicate To us and as Christians Christian authors were writing about these ghosts and their return, they had to figure out, well, where are they coming from? They're not, they're not coming from heaven. These aren't saints. They're not coming from hell because nobody gets out of hell once you're in there. <laughs> right? The whole theology of hell is that once you're there, you're there. You're done. So they must be coming from some middle place. And, and so what we see in trying to think about ghosts and where they come from, we see Christian thinkers slowly developing the idea of purgatory of some kind of middle place in the afterlife where souls are purged, cleansed of their sins, usually in fire, before they can actually go on to heaven. And so many of the ghosts that we see coming to us in the Christian tradition are ghosts that are coming out of purgatory looking for help, looking for a way to get out of purgatory faster generally. And so what we see then is the Christian church is domesticating the classical ghost story and using it as a tool to teach people about what will happen to them after they die and how they should behave and what is the best way to get rid of sin while you're still alive so that you don't have to suffer in purgatory quite as long and then you talk about the um,
1: <clears throat> when the reformation comes around and the protestants who don't then believe in purgatory who then
2: turn away from right. that and then the ghost stories change once again well they do the thing is what's so striking there Is that the Protestants absolutely deny purgatory. And they say very rightfully, it is not in the Christian scriptures. They look back to the 27 texts that make up the New Testament. There's not a single mention of purgatory in those texts. In the same way, there's not a single mention of anybody called a pope. And so they, they take those texts very seriously. And they want, the Protestants want very much to return and recreate a community a Christian community that is based on the literal interpretation of those texts. And so they, they cast out purgatory. They say, there is no middle place. We either go to heaven or we go to hell. But they cannot deny that ghosts appear. <laughs> they cannot deny that they themselves have seen ghosts, that their friends and neighbors have seen ghosts, that there's a long tradition of ghosts, of spirits of the dead allegedly returning. And they are at great pains to try and explain then, well, if these are not the dead souls of Christians returning from purgatory, what are they? And they're left with a a very different definition, which is these are not, generally speaking, the spirits of the dead. They are either angels who are coming to visit us in the likeness of the dead, or far more likely, they are demons. They are here to deceive us and to lead us astray. And so they, they don't scrap the idea of, images of dead people coming back to us completely they just reinterpret its meaning to exclude purgatory
1: and i think you then get a shift of what exactly uh is the relationship because you know one of the questions i was asked uh was well are these all spooky stories are these scary stories were people scared of the ghosts and Mm. you know for the most part in the book they're Maybe riddled with guilt, and they're upset because it's someone they know, and it's something that's you know um, causing them unrest. But they don't generally consider them scary. Um, but that must shift when all of a sudden you think that the person that you're talking to, or the person who might look like your father, is actually a demon.
2: Hmm. Yeah.
1: No. That is a. That
2: is a. And that's that's. There's an emotional toll that that takes. I mean, and, and this is one of the. This is one of the things that is so great about Shakespeare play about hamlet is that you know hamlet who allegedly you know based on references in the text in the play is a protestant is somehow faced with the idea that he has seen the ghost of his murdered father Mm -hmm. and then he's torn by this is this really the ghost of his father you know and he says are you a spirit of health or a goblin damned?" he gives it one of two protestant interpretations right are you an angel, or are you a devil? Um, and, and then he has to come to grips with the fact that no, this actually really is his father who's returned from the dead. Um, but, but the, part of the struggle and the anguish that Hamlet experiences is, is, is that they, is that Protestants have given up on a 1500 year tradition, or a very old tradition, at least, that, that made people feel pretty good about the afterlife, gave them a certainty that even if they sinned, and, you know, you and I have committed, you know, according to the Christian tally of, of virtue and vice, I'm sure you and I have committed many sins today. I'm not going to speak for Tim. Um, but the, uh, uh but, but once you give up that safety net of purgatory, then your life becomes much more fraught with anxiety as to where you're going to end up. Um, and we see some of that, that torment, some of it, some of Hamlet's torment is, is him coming to grips with You know, if that's the way I think about the afterlife, oh my gosh, this is kind of a terrible thing.
1: Well, and Dad Um, doesn't
2: do much to to quell
1: that when he he talks about, you know, if humans can't even see the things that I've seen and remain alive
2: and remain sane. Mm hmm. Yes, yes. And, um, yeah, but, the but it's, the Protestant Reformation is a huge watershed in the history of, um, you know, it really creates a break in, in a, in a tradition of. Ways ways of thinking about the return of the dead that stretched back two thousand years.
0: So, I'm um, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, please go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, is it then, you know, the, is it the outside influence of Christianity, the outside influence of, you know, trying to manipulate beliefs into a system uh, that you know the, the the dominant religion of the world wanted to see be the dominant religion of the world, where we start to see the shift where these ghosts actually become. Scary figures. When, do, when does a ghost story become a scary story? When does a an, an encounter with a spirit become something that we should fear instead of welcome?
2: Well, that's a great that's a great question. And there are references. I mean, there are references throughout many of these stories, going back to the Roman period, that suggest that some people were frightened by ghosts. So, for instance, in Pliny's famous story about the haunted house in Athens, the reason the house is empty is that every other occupant who had lived there not only saw the ghost, but it, it terrified them to such a degree that they could not stop thinking about it during the day, they couldn't sleep at night, and then they all succumbed to illness and died. So there's a very, very strong sense in that story that the ghosts are terrifying. Um, we should make the distinction. Many of the stories about ghosts, as you're absolutely right, these are not like scary boo stories for the most part. These are these are spirits of the dead that are coming back and communicating with With the living, often for their mutual benefit. But then, inexplicably, and no historian has ever really explained this, in England, in the 12th century, we see this incredible flourishing of stories about corpses rising from the grave. These are not ghosts, these are living corpses. These are, these are dead bodies that dig themselves out of the grave and wander around town. And have this terrible effect on these local communities. And the authors who talk about them are at great pains to explain what is going on. Um, they say this is something unheard of in the annals of ancient history. We've never read anything like it. It's absolutely terrifying. The the, the dead bodies themselves do very strange things. They don't they don't kind of they're, they're not like um, violent in the sense of ripping people apart or they 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 will abuse people. They will beat people up in the case of one guy who comes back to life. He goes to the house of his wife and he lies on top of her in bed and freaks her out as you can imagine. Um, and so there's a kind of psychological trauma to these risen corpses um, that, that is, that it's very clear. The fear is palpable in the stories. And of course it's also wonderful from a narrative purpose because then you get the culmination of these stories is we get these heroes who come forth, whether usually brave young men, sometimes brave monks, um, and they, they have to do away with these walking corpses. And so one of the lovely things about the Penguin Book of the Undead is that it's not only a handy guide to ancient necromancy, but it'll tell you how to deal with a walking corpse in your community.
1: And I was thinking about uh, you know, locally we have Mercy Brown and and when you started talking about um how exactly I had to dispose of those dead.
2: Mhm. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a difficult business. I mean it seems that one of the one of the, the best things that you can do when faced with a walking corpse in your community is it's decapitation. You really have to dig it up and you have to chop its head off. And then you have to burn it. And, you know, as, as someone who's interested in the way people in the past think about how to deal with the problem of the undead, it's, it's, it's what, you know, it's a wonderful kind of awesome story to read, to hear about heroic guys with swords running out and chopping up, you know, you know, the living corpses and burning them to death and saving their communities. But, and then, but you can always just say, well, it's just a story, except in Anglo-Saxon England, where you know many of these stories are taking place in England in the 12th century, but in, in archaeological digs that have taken place in Anglo-Saxon England, they found these incredible graves where the heads of the bodies have been cut off and placed in between the legs mm. of the person they buried. And this is one of the ways that the story tells us that you have to deal with the living dead. And so archaeologists have brought this to the attention of historians to say, we have no other way of explaining this unusual burial, except in reference to these stories about the living dead. So there's a really interesting, you know, um, corroboration of these stories in uh, in the archaeological record.
1: And how widespread was that? I mean, how many people were
2: returning from the dead and having to be decapitated? Well, uh, so in England, there's at least a half a dozen stories um, in the book uh, from the late 12th century. Um, They they differ in some of the details. Uh, um, Sometimes the the dead the dead body usually has to be dug up. You know, it's usually at rest during the day when people dig it up. In some cases, the bodies are hugely bloated. um, You know, giant corpulent bodies. And uh, and then when they're pierced with a shovel, they bleed out all sorts of gore. They're described as being like giant leeches. Um, In other cases, um, when the bodies are decapitated and burned, in this one particular story, um, the chest of the corpse cracks open and the heart pops. When it's blackened by the fire, and out of it flies an evil spirit in the shape of a crow. Oh. Um, so they have all sorts of different little, you know, local man of, you know, local kind of um, nuances to them. Um, but from England in this period, especially in the late 12th, early 13th century, this just seems to be something that people are are concerned about and writing about, and definitely frightened of. Um, the the true, fe- I mean, there's a fear of the walking corpse because it's disgusting and it can. You know, it comes to your house and all the animal all your animals go crazy when it's around barking and howling and all that. Um, but the or you, lies it, on your girlfriend. And it lies on your yeah, or your, or its former girlfriend or whatever, yeah. And the um it's a it's a, it's an awesome detail. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but it's also the fact that these things have a pestilent breath that just by breathing in these little communities, people people take sick and die. Um, and that's that's blamed on the on the breath of the undead.
0: So Scott, you're talking a lot about these encounters that people have with the undead or with, with these ghosts, with these spirits, and the way that it manifests for them and the way that they interact with it. Uh, but our co-host, Stephanie Burke, who who's joined us here, she... Manifest, you know, she deals with these spirits in a different way. She's a, a psychic medium. Are there a lot of those stories as well? People who have that gift of being able to communicate with the dead, and it's not so much the dead coming back as much as somebody being able to reach out and and just find them and communicate with them.
2: Well, that's that's a really really great great question. Um, so there are specialists. You know, we have our we have our ancient necromancers who are who are specialists in. Compelling souls to come back to bodies so that they can speak. Um, there, it seems that the that there isn't really a true class of of mediums um, who can do this so much as people who are in fact somehow related to the dead. So one of one of the most famous stories in here uh, in the collection is about uh, the ghost of a young man. It's a 13th century story. And he he died when he was about thirteen or fourteen, and um, uh, he goes into the afterlife. But then a little while later, three or four days after his death, he returns to his cousin, uh, his female cousin, who is at uh, his his age, thirteen or fourteen, um, and he speaks through her. Nobody can see him. She relates to her parents and to all the other adults around her that he is there, and he is he is telling her about the afterlife and of course they're all very curious once they believe that this is actually happening and so the entire story is like an interview where they come various people come and ask the ghost questions about the life to come and it's all done through the mediumship of this young woman and the reason i mean there's several reasons for this one is that she's a virgin so she's still sexually pure so she can she is she's the proper kind of pure conduit for this information which is all impeccably orthodox and correct but also the ghost specifically says i loved you more than anyone else in life and that's why i can come and see you so there's an emotional immediacy an emotional connection there that allows her to be his medium um but we don't really get uh at least in the stories that i'm familiar with we 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 don't really get um uh any any kind of uh, individual who is especially attuned to the dead. Um, I'm trying to think of the monastic communities that tell some of these stories. I mean, some of the monks are in such a hurry they don't recognize the dead as being dead. I mean, everyone in the place is hooded, <laughs> right? right and, yeah. Um, you know, they all look like, you know, specters, as it were. You know, in nighttime on the stairs when the torches are burning, um, and sometimes they don't even recognize the ghosts among them, and the ghost has to do something strange to, for them to get, you know, to get their attention. Um, so, no, but there's no, there's the, we, we don't see anything quite like a psychic medium of the sources. Now, that doesn't mean they weren't there, of course. Um, most of the sources that we have from medieval Europe and from the ancient period, too, are written by the, you know, 5%, but the, you know, the top 5% who were literate and who represent an elite point of view. Um, I have no doubt that that, you know, in the medieval countryside, there were people who were especially attuned to talking to spirits for you know for whatever purpose.
0: I mean, um, you know, these cultures always had shamans or soothsayers or or somebody who was able to kind of reach into the the greater knowledge that the average person couldn't. So I'm sure that they had this on their plate of things that they could do. Yeah, I,
2: it, it's just not uh, yeah, we our insight into that slice of culture and that slice of the population really only comes when high-level churchmen are prohibiting people from doing things (laughs) it's a kind of you know when the when the missionary goes out into the countryside he often takes with him a list of you know don't do this and don't do this and don't do this and some of these lists are extraordinary we have them going back to the 8th century you know do not howl at the moon to prevent it from waxing or waning you know do not worship idols made of wax or dung or whatever you know and so so, we just get this list that implies that there are people who are doing these things, but we almost never have the first hand testimony of those people themselves.
0: So, that's why Matt Moniz isn't here tonight. He's getting rid of all of his dung statues that he has <laughs> out in his backyard <laughs> altar. But, see, Stephanie, I was trying to make you feel a little bit better and make you feel like, you know, there had been other people like you over the centuries, but no, it turns out you just really are weird.
3: I am weird. It's true. Um, I have to imagine, though. You know in those days or at least at some point we know um because history tells us to look toward that direction that anybody that did do what i do um it was taboo or you were burned at the stake for it or you were hung for it um you were looked upon as being different or evil um i know that that has a lot to do with when structured religion came into play um or really came into the Well, that's play, probably why we don't say. have some
0: of these stories, too, is because those people right. that were telling them were ostracized.
3: Exactly, or they, you know, they were terrified for their lives or their families, and that's why they didn't come forward. But I have to assume somewhere on this earth there is writings of it. It was just never shared.
1: Well, I think even if you look at the way that they treated the undead that he was that he was talking about earlier about the you know chopping off the head and bleeding between the legs and then burning it, that sounds much more like a rural superstition kind of tradition than something that is you know somehow read between the lines in, in the Bible. I mean, they're, they're so I think that those traditions probably still exist, um, but they're the the, the 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 subtext or the reading between the lines. They're the the you know. Um, the, the rituals that seem to exist, to remain, even though they have nothing to do with the Bible, and
2: but these people have to still practice them. Chris, yes, that's a great point. Um, and we see the contrast between the two different traditions in some of the stories that are told by William of Newburgh about these corpses that rise up out of the ground, because there's, there's such a concern among the local population that the local parish priest writes to the bishop in the in the nearby city and says, what do we do about this? And the bishops then the bishop confers with his men and says, "Well, look at I'll write a letter of, of of absolution to absolve that person who's rising from the dead of their sins. Just go into the tomb and place it on his chest, and everything should be fine." And in that case, in that story, that's the only time that actually works. <laughs> so that's the official church response: absolve the corpse of its sins, and it shouldn't rise again. Right? There's no reason to be restless. But in one of the other stories told at the very same time, they try to do that. They, again, put a letter of absolution on the corpse, in the tomb, but it continues to rise. And one of the local guys says, well, no, I'm just going to take matters into my own hand. And he goes and digs up the body and chops off its head. And that solves the problem. And so that that's not a sanctioned response from the part of the church. That is a that is a local, you know, that's that's a way to solve the problem through local knowledge, as it were.
1: And it's another example of you know the the rural superstition and folklore actually to some degree helping to mold the the ideas of the next generation
2: of that religion's followers mm mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah yeah, I think that's absolutely correct because we see that being repeated it's a cycle that's repeated um I would love to have the sources that we just don't have them that would tell us much more about what you know what people like that guy were thinking. <laughs> they just don't turn up unfortunately.
1: Well, I can't remember what are the name of the two books that are the the witch hunters' books because those go get into a lot of them. I can never pronounce them; they're in Latin.
0: The, oh, the, 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 the
1: Malleus Maleficarum <laughs> is uh, the <laughs> hammer of witches. Yeah.
0: Yes, yes. Um, so I think
1: you know yeah. that the, some of that still remains in there, but that once again, that's still from a perspective of a of a, of a religious person looking upon yeah. these superstitions. Yes.
0: My favorite was they actually had an illustrated version of that that came out, uh, a few years ago, you know. Somebody decided to take the original text and improve upon it, you know, cause it's public domain, so you can do whatever you want with it. So somebody took the, uh, the Malle- Malleus Maleficarum and added, like, gruesome, uh, illustrations to go with it. <laughs> so I was like, awesome! Way to make it even worse. You know, Wiccans everywhere are like, no!
1: Get rid of that! I think that's, I think that's the version I have.
0: Oh, do you? You have the illustrated one? Yeah, I think so, both nice. of them. Nice, awesome. So, uh, Chris, but you were you and I were talking kind of off air a little bit here, going back and forth with messages that some of the stuff that that Scott is putting out in this book, you know, it doesn't always jive well with the way that you know the modern authorities define ghosts in ghost history.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, we we tend to um, look at our, our our ghosts as I don't know, not having a, a purpose. Um, or necessarily, be, you know, be roaming spirits. You know, things that we have to fight up, fight against, and and yet there, there still is a very strong tradition today, of, you know, ghosts need to have something settled. You know, when I was writing, um, I, and I you know I've talked about this on the show before, but when I was writing, um, picture yourself uh, ghost hunting. And I, I gave a survey out to probably 30 paranormal investigators at that time. Um, and almost to an investigator, they said, in their definition of what a ghost is, that the spirit needed to get something done. Um and so that's one of the ideas that's really kind of prevailed through this. And as I'm flipping through this, I'm like, oh wow, you know, there's a very tight connection between between um, ghosts as defined in this book and, for example, like crisis apparitions um, and people who need to get one last message or, or something like that. But the the way that we view them is we, we're not nearly as as I mean we're much more scared of them today than we were or that that seem in in most of them even the ones that are related to us there's there seems to be a disconnect between them that's not a familiarity that uh the people in this book tended to have with them
0: I think, though, too, part of the difference is we're out, we're going out looking for them. As opposed to, Scott, the stories that you're talking about are are the spirits coming to the people. You know, we're the ones that are going out there and essentially, as we said before, you know, practicing necromancy, trying to get these spirits to talk with us and communicate with us, instead of it having to be something that happens to us.
2: Right. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, that is a big difference. People, people tended, again, in the ancient world, people tended to seek out the dead when they, when, when they thought the dead had information for them they couldn't get elsewhere. But other than that, in the medieval tradition most in most cases it's the dead coming to the living and even when we're called
1: upon like we're not allowed to have swords <laughs> the, the way that the people who were uh, investigating the paranormal back then were able to
0: <laughs> it doesn't go well when you when you're running around in the dark with a sword <laughs> it you, you know there's there's a one question in here in particular uh, that that caught my eye, and I know it goes a little bit different in the time period that that you researched for this book scope. Perhaps you know you can kind of uh, expand on this idea a little bit, and that's the idea that you know some cultures don't have a lot of references to ghosts and don't have a lot of experience with ghosts. They, this person mentioned the Native American culture of of this country, but that there are some cultures that while they have a word for it, they don't always you know have a history of having experiences with it.
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, it says a lot about their belief in the afterlife, and um, in some, in some cases, uh, uh, like in, in ancient Greece and Rome, the, the land of the living and the land of the dead, it was a permeable boundary. I mean, uh, you could, you could, you could go through it. You know, heroes could go through it and contact could be made. And certainly, by the time that structure was adopted by the Christian church, it fit a model of the afterlife that Christians were developing um, you know, one affregation of, of souls before entry into heaven. Um but I can just as well see, you can just as well imagine other religious systems where um you know the dead are gone and and no further contact is is possible. Um
0: but those are few and far between, right? More often I, I, than not. No absolutely. And I
2: think I think that's the case and I think it says something that across various cultures and even across you know, vast distances in the pre-modern world, we we have continuity in the fact that people believe that relationships with the dead are important.
1: Why? I was wondering. Uh, one of the things when I was reading, why did the Scandinavians have such a, a different time with their ghosts than other parts of
2: Europe? Oh, that's a great question, and we don't we don't know enough about them to know. Um, th- those stories are so quirky and strange because the dead are. Uh, so unpredictable in their behavior it seems that their actions are are um well maybe they're not unpredictable and that their actions seem to be dictated very much by how they were in life you know particularly grumpy or disagreeable people seem to come back as grumpy disagreeable ghosts uh bent on doing harm what's what's so striking about that culture is how violent those ghosts are. Uh, you know, they, they will readily kill individuals and certainly, you know, cattle and cause all sorts of mischief. But then, you know, in the very same stories, we get these ghosts that are just kind of a nuisance. They, you know, they, they die and then they, they come and hang out at your house and, you, and they won't leave um, until you actually, you know, bring a lawsuit against them and and uh, and get them kicked out for trespassing. So and I, don't, I don't know if
1: I'm talking, you know, maybe too generalization, but is it because of their Nordic tradition of religion? I'm not even sure if Scandinavians, you know, no, had so. that. So, so they're, they're before
2: forms of Christianity were there, they're... I, I, think that's, I think that's a good way to think about it, um, because many of these stories from Scandinavia are written down in the 12th and 13th centuries, several hundred years after those cultures have been converted to Christianity, but they still retain... You know, this this, this strong sense of, 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 let's call it a folkloric signature that predates Christianity. Um, you know, many of these northern cultures, they they're, they don't really struggle to give up their religion. They're very happy to convert to Christianity when Christianity is presented to them, but they do hold on to their heroes and they hold on to their ghosts and they, they hold on to very traditional ways of thinking about ideals in the afterlife. Even though, and they don't see that as being contrary to their Christianity, um, seemingly, uh, and they and and of course it's only in the Christian area that these guys are learning the languages that are then allowing them to write these traditions down. So they're always several centuries removed from whatever the source was. Um, but they are very peculiar. Um, there's just they've just never been explained.
0: How, how did the approach toward ghosts and ghost experiences change during the Age of Enlightenment?
2: Well, um, so the ghosts have a, a remarkable continuity depending on the tradition. So the, in the Catholic tradition, they remain alive and well. Um, you know, and, and, and in fact, you know, still up to the present day, ghosts are important in the Catholic tradition, I would argue. Uh, in other types of Christianity, you know, Protestant-themed Christianity... Um, less so. Uh, it's really in the 19th century that we begin to see. Right at around the time that people start writing ghost stories for, you know, the, the pleasure of getting the shivers, um, you know, we, we begin to see rational attacks on the idea that the dead can return. Um, but that's relatively new in the in the entire Western tradition. Uh, in the same way, it was only in the early 19th century that we began measuring the age of the Earth in geological time rather than biblical time. You know, gaining many millions and billions of years in the process. So, um, so the night, the 19th century is a huge turning point, I think, for for many of these beliefs. Um, but uh, that being said, you know, we live, we, we allegedly now live in a rational world. But I'm sure that most of the people that you talk to out there will not only express a belief in ghosts, but also a, uh, will tell you a story about a supernatural encounter they've had. Uh, so I, I I think it I think it persists. It has an incredible tenacity. Um, I've never had an encounter with uh, I've never had a supernatural encounter in my life. But I've talked to many many people about this book and this project, and many of them have come forward to say, I can I think I can talk to you about this. I actually have seen dead people. I have seen evidence that you know the the dead do return, and and they see me as being a sympathetic ear. Um, and I am. I love hearing their stories, absolutely. And their stories would fill another whole volume.
0: Well, and that's what I love about ghost stories and, and ghost experiences. It's one of the few things that can connect us with, you know, the, the ancient versions of ourselves. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's the basic things about us, you know, the uh, the physical processes that we must go through every day uh you know eating and all that stuff breathing all that stuff and then there's of course the emotional attachments that we we always have to feel and ghosts are part of that and ghosts are something that you know will keep us connected uh amongst each other even even as we you know stare into devices and don't really pay attention to each other face to face ghosts are always kind of that good conduit that keep us connected as a people
2: (laughs) absolutely i agree with that entirely um and it's and and as a historian for me, to, for people who have a people who have a modern sensibility uh, and a modern openness, even in this rational world, to the supernatural, that lends them an empathy when they go back to read these texts and to say, wow, these people are you know these, these people are very similar to me. They you know they are in tune to these th- these different kind of encounters. They they believe in more than they can see and feel and touch and and um, have proven to them. Um, so I, I, I think that quality of empathy is very important. All
0: right, well, I want to thank you, Scott Bruce, for joining us tonight, talking about The Penguin Book of the Undead, 1,500 Years of Supernatural Encounters, and it's going to be released this Tuesday, right? So people can go on Amazon or wherever they get books. They can pre-order it now, and it will ship out to them on Tuesday?
2: Yes, please. And, um, yeah, and I'll add, too, that um, I'm doing a book tour throughout October and November. You can find the uh, all the information on the um, events page of my website, and, uh, I will be on the East Coast and the West Coast and points in between, uh, doing readings and signings. And, um, if you come out, I would love to meet you. Please tell me that you heard me on the show. And, um, happy to talk to you. Happy to sign your book.
0: All right. Give everybody that website again and how they can follow you on Twitter and Facebook and wherever else they can find you.
2: hmm. So, uh, the website is medievalimagination.com. And on Twitter, I am at uh, Zeus All of the Dusk. Uh, one of your, one of your, uh, listeners pointed out correctly yes it's a robert e howard story a conan story he grew up reading those stories and absolutely love them um and uh and there's uh you can look for the penguin book at the undead on facebook that's probably the easiest way to find it and the events are all listed there too
0: all right well thank you so much again for joining us and uh and we look forward to uh seeing what other what other works you do come up with in the future if there are more volumes because you know there's, uh, there's, there's still there's a lot more history that you still have left to cover
2: know the, um, the the companion volume to this uh, just went under contract with Penguin Classics. Nice. Um, it, it will be the uh, the Penguin Book of Hell, um, 3,000 Years of Torment.
0: Oh, can, um, can't wait okay, for Okay, I'm you.
2: booking you now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much again, Scott, and you have a, a great night and a great Halloween season. Thanks, Tim. Thanks,
2: Chris. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Now. Take care.
0: And thank you, we'll Chris, you for... Night. For joining us and, uh, and thank you to everybody for listening, for joining in in the chat room. A fantastic night of discussion. Go back, download the podcast of this episode, re-listen to it again, and make sure that you go out and get the Penguin Book of the Undead. Gonna be a lot of great stuff that will really expand your mind a little bit more than just the topics that we've talked about here over the last 10 years. You know, we, we, we've been doing this for a long time. 10 years is a long time in the paranormal world, but it's just a, a drop in the bucket compared to how long people have been telling these stories. So go on and check out that that book i highly recommend it and uh, just make sure that you put the cover face down when it's on your nightstand at night before you go to bed so that you don't have any nightmares definitely that does it for tonight's show until next week we want you all to stay spooktacular